this is producer Josh Reed. And this is your host, or one of your hosts, Nathan Bennett. And today we had, although I wasn't able to be in the studio with Nate and Mari during this awesome conversation, I did get a chance to start listening to the awesome conversation that we had with our uh, latest guest, the CMO of Genesis, Marian Taboy. Marian was incredible. I remember the first time I saw Marian, it was on this video recording of a Genesis event before I worked at Genesis. And I remember seeing him on stage doing this incredible demo and thinking this guy is one of the smartest and most terrifying individuals I've ever seen. He really is. He has this aura of like intimidation, but when you also have a conversation, he's super smart and down to earth. Yeah, and it's funny too, because part of Marian's charm is that he doesn't understand why he comes off like that, because he's genuinely not that way. He is exactly. uh, one of the most warm, open people I've ever had the privilege to meet. He is very available for his team and for the Genesis family at large. And he's had an incredible story. His life story is amazing from training to be in the Dutch army to studying the law of war back in the day to all of the innovations that he was involved in in the technology space and then rebranding Genesis a couple years back. This episode was one of those amazing conversations that you you just know you're always gonna remember. And Marian was uh, incredible to be as forthright, as open, and really as warm as you could expect anybody to yeah. be. It was really a privilege to have him in. So uh, we hope you guys enjoy it. Ryan, welcome and thank you for taking a moment with us. It is tremendous to have you in the studio, our makeshift studio in Raleigh, North Carolina. You're very welcome. I, I want to start you off by with a softball question. Mm -hmm. You have two kids, right? I do. Uh, what is something that you have learned from your kids? Well, I took my kids when they were really young to the U.S., right? I took them out of the Dutch schooling system, out of their family, out of their friends. and How old were they when they moved? They were four and six. Okay. And uh, very young, and actually my daughter was the six-year-old at the time. We just put her into school, so she just started reading and writing. And But it's just a, it's an incredible change to take them out of Dutch society and family and friends and put them in a society where whoever talks to them, they don't understand a word what they say. And it took them a little bit longer than I expected. And then you see the sheer perseverance of these two little kids that suddenly start hanging out together, do stuff together, become sister and brother for eternity and friends for eternity and, and get over it. And they work it. And it's kind of interesting to see that kids that young already have this perseverance and this desire and will to succeed and, and move on and uh, don't let themselves be confronted with obstacles and stop. So it was interesting to see that at that young age. And it gave me a lot of hope and believe in what the future generations can bring to us. So that there's adaptability. Right. right. Mm -hmm. yeah. And their struggle even at four and six to learn a completely new culture and language actually drew them closer together. Yeah, a lot of people would say culture is not that different, but it is. And uh, but especially the language was. Uh, if you go to school when you're six with your little brother who's four, and everybody speaks a different language, it's hard, right? So you have no way to really communicate outside weird body language and uh, some facial expressions. But even those, you don't really know whether they're appropriate or not. And they were kind of on their own for for periods of time during the day. And it's kind of funny to hear your teacher say, "Well, she's doing great. She's doing great." And then, like three weeks in here, that she hasn't said a word yet. Like, oh, okay, well, how is that great? And knowing that a six-year-old is going through the motions of trying to find that rhythm and trying to find her voice in, in that society, 
uh, and in that world that she's suddenly put into by her parents. That was intriguing. How did you get them acclimated? Was it just time or did you do classes or? Yeah, well, it was a little bit of time. Uh, we, of course, we spent time talking and speaking in English with them, which mm. uh, after two weeks, the teacher asked us to stop doing mm. because we were doing it all wrong and they learned very <laughs> bad accents. And uh, so we went back to Dutch. Please, and, uh, Please stop, stop trying to and, teach them. And she was right, by the way. Ten years in, it's actually hard to get them to speak Dutch in a proper way versus the English that they now have. So in time, you get friends and they become part of your, your ecosystem off. And get the ability to lean on you get people in the house to babysit that speak english so in time you get there so time was a really important friend for us i also think that we we made a the right choice to go and live where we live which is very multinational the school that they go to had 65 different nationalities did you move to time. san francisco immediately or no we moved to burlingame immediately okay. there's no such thing as a dutch school in in silicon valley there's a little bit of a curriculum but not a real school so you're kind of depending on second language learning programs so we looked at it and they said Berkeley, Burlingame, Palo Alto are by far the best. Burlingame is by far the closest to the office. So that's the first one we went. We loved it and uh, yeah, we found a house there. I remember this was in the middle of the financial crisis. So Hillsborough, which is a state-rich environment, houses were dirt cheap. How do you keep them tied to their Dutch heritage? We do that by, so initially you don't spend a lot of time on that because you want them to succeed in the new world. and. After a year or two, it becomes a question, where are we going to go? Are we going to stay? Are we going to go back? And so the longer that question is unanswered, the more they become Americanized, right? So when you look at my 15-year-old son, you would not recognize him as a Dutch kid at all. He's a totally Americanized. And when we go to Amsterdam with freezing temperatures, he will walk around in shorts <laughs> because that's what he's used to in California. So it's, it's very unclear that he's Dutch. They both speak it, and my wife and I are both Dutch, so that helps. So we kind of enforce it at home now. Uh, so at dinner table, we speak Dutch. They get Dutch schooling. So we got a tutor, a remote tutor that helps them with an hour every week. Uh, it's hard for them. They don't really like it, but they focus purely on language and Dutch history. So that's kind of where they, they get some information. They, they get some roots and their family is still in the Netherlands. Big friends are Dutch. Uh, so we try to make sure that we travel enough back and forth to, uh, to get them in, in touch with their family and their roots a little bit. And we started doing it in different time. We went back with Christmas every year. And uh, like after five years, they only remembered the Netherlands as this gray, depressing, rainy country, which was always kind of cold and but nothing else was much was going on. So we decided to go back in summer and to show them, oh, there's actually trees there as well that are green and flowers and stuff like that. So that uh, changes up a little bit. So, so we're trying hard to, to keep that roots going. And they both know that they're Dutch and American uh, to a certain extent. But yeah, we, we, we focus on it. I can absolutely relate. I'm growing up bicultural for me, too. It was like your daughter when I was five, six years old going to kindergarten. I did not speak a lick of English, <laughs> so I was completely that silent kid. I'm pretty sure they thought that there was something wrong with right. me. But like you said, that friends, the ecosystem, now that they have that appreciation uh, for both cultures, why do you think it's so important now in this day and age for kids to really have that ability to have that global view. I often uh, compare my daughter to myself. When I was six years old, we moved from uh, the southern west part of the Netherlands to the eastern part of the Netherlands. And at that time, that felt like the same move that we made with my kids from the Netherlands all the way to the US from a distance perspective. The distance had become much smaller than they used to be. When I moved to the eastern parts of Holland, the entire community that I knew just disappeared. 
uh, for them, it's actually not the case. So they got all, so many tools that they can leverage and use to communicate back and forth with what they left behind, right? The Netherlands is never really far away. So that changed quite a bit. And, uh, and I think that's, that's the important part to realize that if you think about that, they are by sheer nature global citizens. And uh, look at all the tools that they have. And many presentations I did, I talked about my daughter and the way that they consume information and consume data. And it's kind of started when we moved from the Netherlands. Uh, because they consume data 24 hours a day and information 24 hours a day. They got m so many information streams that are always on from any place on this uh, on this planet that tell them something. And then they have to figure out even today whether this is real or not. Is this fake news or true news? So by the sheer fact that they live in this world of today, you need to be a global citizen. I don't think everybody is, but if you look at the, the, the community that we live in, you have to be. My her best friends are Korean, Japanese, French, and American. So that's by sheer nature, you share global perspectives and, and views and ideas on where you came from and, and, and languages that you speak, roots that you come from, the history that your countries have. We did a project uh, the other day in school, which was about Germany post-war. She does German in school. And everybody chose sports, which as a Dutch person is just awkward, right? Why would you focus on German sports? It's like the last thing that I would focus on. So she wanted to focus on the wall because she knew I was there when the wall came down and we visited that. And for me, as, as a Cold War kid, it was a massive and important thing. Mm -hmm. But even at that time, the news was so slow compared to today that it took hours and sometimes even days to get information around the fact that the Cold War was ending to my domain. Today, that's not the case anymore. It's all real time. And I was very happy that, by the way, she chose that topic because I think it's relevant even today. Uh, and it made it even more clear to me that she is a true global citizen. I think it's a massive benefit for her. Can you talk a little bit about your background in the military? Sure. A lot of people probably don't know what your experiences were in the Dutch military, right? Yes. Can you talk about uh, your experiences there and how that informs your life today? Yeah. So let me first tell a, a, a short story about my career day adventure with my son when he was like five, six years old, two years into the United States. I was invited to talk about what I do at Genesis at that time. I ran product management, so I started talking about product, et cetera, et cetera. And then one of the kids asked me, because I gave them like university, went into the military, then did this, but now I do this. And I wanted to talk about this, and I think I created my best presentation ever with all kinds of animations that were really for a six-year-old, like really, uh, I, I think, think we need interesting. To see it. Yeah, I know, I would <laughs> love to see yeah, that. Yeah, like moving, moving objects <laughs> everywhere. And then, so I sit in there, and five, 15 minutes of blind stares, and I'm finished, and then the first question pops up, so when you were in the army, did you have a sword? <laughs> right. I spent the next 20 minutes talking about my army days with those kids that were much more interested in the army time, which was only about a year plus versus the career that I built after that, but fair enough. Uh, so yeah, I did. I spent time in the, in the army uh, just to kind of set it up. This was in 95, 94, 95. So uh, five years after the Cold War ended, uh, the war came down. Uh, NATO armies were trying to figure out who is the next enemy but at the same time didn't feel that they required, and by the way, before 9-11, so kind of in this interbellum between the end of the Cold War and the start of the war on terrorism, armies didn't really know, NATO armies didn't really know who their next enemy would be, and that turned out to be terrorism mainly, but at that time it was a bit unclear. So how do you shape an army that was always looking at being the infantry, like slaughter part of the party when the Soviets would invade Germany and would be just buying time for the Americans to come into Germany, and that was the role of the Dutch army. So they were trying to figure out what to do. And at that moment as well, they didn't want to invest all that much. So they were moving from a conscripted army to a professional army. 
And I was one of the final conscripts that they pulled into that army. And my year, they only pulled university graduates into the army. So the army at that time immediately was probably the oldest one in the world because the average age was like 23 for a conscripted soldier. We were older than most of our sergeants. And they trained us to be medics, most of us, either engineers or medics. So whether you had a law degree or a uh, liberal arts degree or a history degree, you were pulled in and they tried to train you as a medic, which is probably the best training I ever did in my entire life. Why did they specifically want to try and train you as a medic? Well, that's a good question. At that time, the Balkan War broke out. So the Yugoslav War broke out, and Americans were sending troops into, uh, actually NATO armies were sending troops into the old Yugoslav uh, domain, and we were training the medics. So the medics came to the Netherlands. Actually, they came to Germany before they went into battle stations, and we trained those medics. And they needed a lot of people to support all the exercise that were going on while all these medics were going into the Yugoslav domain. So we were trained to support Nonex exercises. And a Nonex exercise is a exercise where you shoot with sharp ammunition. Uh, so we did the support of that while the medics that were trained even longer went into the battle station and into the actual war zone. Uh, we also then started training medics that were going into those war zones because there's a massive shortage of really trained medics. So we became part of both the support and the training facilities. So they needed a lot of those. Uh, it was also the Dutch Army's role is to build bridges, so engineers and to support medic, medical staff. So we, a lot of doctors come into the army, uh, physiotherapists, and then other people that were trained as medics to do the, the, the ground support. So that's what they trained us at. And every Friday, even after the first week, you got an exam. If you passed the exam, you continued in week two. If you didn't pass the exam, you were shipped off to a restaurant job somewhere in a uh, <laughs> compound in, like uh, in Germany, <laughs> and you were done for the next nine months. That's wow. what you were doing, waiting tables or cleaning or oh, whatever. Geez. So it was three months. Every week you had an exam every Friday, and then you had your final exam with Lotus victim, victims. Lotus victims are people that played it, they're incredibly heard, and, and they're fantastic actors. So, so they come up with bandages, and you wonder, is this real or is this not real? Wow. That's, that's how they act, and that's your final exam, and then you go into uh, into mainstream field. job. Yeah. So they, I was the oldest conscripted soldier they had. I was 24 when they conscripted me. I even fell in a different category when we had to do the one on meter dash or stuff like that, so in the older category, which easier. Uh, but I le did learn three things. The first thing I learned is that when they made me a corporal, because I was the oldest, uh, and I suddenly had 40 soldiers to kind of boss around, that's the most unmotivated group of people you will ever find <laughs> in your entire life. And I learned a hard way to manage people and motivate people to do stuff that they didn't necessarily want to do. Uh, so that's one. The second thing I learned in the army is that I loved being on the edge of technology and business. So we did a project with the American army, uh, which kind of, we did triage on patients and we then barcoded these patients. So we put a barcode on every patient that told them they need to go to the operating room or they can be transported out by plane, they can trans be transported out by car, they can walk. And we, I did the business analysis on that project, which was fantastic, I loved it. And that's where I learned, ah, law is not really my thing. This is what I'm gonna focus on. I'm gonna focus on business and, uh, and uh, technology. And a third thing I learned in the army is that when I actually executed work as a medic, I did the right thing the time it was called for. I was very happy with that because not everybody does that, right? You had some people that just froze on the spot when something real happened and you see a guy shooting himself through the foot, you have to do something. The first thing you do is admire the wound because a shot through the foot is admire beautiful. Admire the, the wound? That's beautiful. It sounds a bit weird, but if you are into being a medic, then you admire beautiful wounds that are clean, easy to bend a, that's like, yeah. 
that can be a beautiful thing. But more importantly, I did the right thing. So that's a whole nother. I want to. That's, <laughs> that's a whole nother episode. I want to dive into see a beautiful wound. Beautiful wounds. That, that, that could be what the I title the of your autobiography, by the way. It could be. Yeah. I'll, think about I'll that. note that. One. Think about that. I'll I like write the, the auto war, by the way, as well. Already taken, I guess. <laughs> I did the law of war. Uh, mm-hmm. I went into law school because I didn't really know what to do. Kind of an escape route for a lot of Dutch uh, university students. So I started there. Didn't really like it, but I had a lot of fun being a student. So I was really good in that. And somehow I kind of got through the first two, three years, which is general academia. Uh, so you learn Dutch law, penal law, government law, whatever. Uh, and somewhere towards the end of it, I did international public law, which is you do international public law and international law of international organizations like the EU. I liked the first one much better, public law, which is not documented very well. Uh, and the part that I liked the best is the law of war. So how is law of war actually constructed, uh, Geneva, Human Rights Convention, elements like that? I find that fascinating. That's the only part of law that I really enjoyed. And if you look at the delta between my lowest grade and my highest grade, it's quite clear that I enjoyed that by far the best. And I wrote a thesis on the use of landmines in war zones, asked by the group of people that were at that time surrounding Lady Di, Mm -hmm. because she was a massive advocate against landmines, right? She went to uh, Angola and uh, Cambodia, I think, walked with a vest and a helmet. Uh, We still think in a completely landmine-free area, but fair enough. She did become an ambassador for the use against of landmines, and especially little toys that uh, were thrown out of planes that looked like toys, but are actually explosive and very unstable. And kids pick them up, they explode in their hands. And people losing hands or legs is a much more costly thing than somebody dying. It sounds rude, but that's how it works with landmines, right? You try to maim somebody, not kill somebody. That's that's kind of how it works. There's a fascinating element to landmines like too. It's a psychological thing it there is, too, yeah. right? Like right. they're still living and we still see the effects. Yeah, you have to struggle, struggle as being, like, yeah. yeah. Yeah, so the, if you're a medic, you know, you take two medics for every wounded soldier, right? So you have to get this person out. It's costly. It takes people away from the land zone. And there's this this psychological element of fear and, and not being able to step anywhere or go anywhere anymore. Uh, and they, these landmines were pretty sophisticated, right? The ones that the Yugoslavs made, at that time Yugoslavia was the landmine producer for the Warsaw Pact. They were put into Afghanistan and they were just counting the Mujahideen trails and they were counting the number of people and like, uh, donkeys or whatever they used to transport stuff. And then they exploded in series. So it's not just like this little gimmicky thing that costs 50 cents and they made them too, but they also made them in pretty sophisticated ways, which is kind of uh, inhumane. That's where it came from. And so I wrote a thesis on that, uh, the, the war against inhumane weapons and landmines and uh, little bomblets especially, uh, which then was used by that group around Lady Di and, and bloody bloody blah to uh, inform conferences and uh, felt really good about that. That team later on won a Nobel Prize. A Nobel Prize. So I feel that I have a little, little, little. little you get a little piece no, of that I, Nobel I Prize. I don't, but <laughs> but it, it made me pretty proud that so finally in your law school of like four years of, of being a student, finally find something that really matters to you and you do something with that. And and actually that part, the fact that I felt really good about doing something really good for a community that you live in, is something that I think as a company should be part of your brand too. So if you want to bridge there, then that's where brands come from too. I think that the brand expression of what a brand stands for has changed massively over the last decade. And I think I learned that in hindsight in, in university, is that it's really important. The other thing you learn in university, and I'm pretty sure everybody does that, is the way of thinking through a problem. And in law, it's, it's, it's a really good way to think about how do you go from a problem to a solution, which is what they now call service design, which they taught in law school in the Netherlands about 30, 40 years ago. 
So that helps me still. So when you look at a problem, the way that you go through that, the way you try to articulate solutions, the way you go into a path that is not going to get you anywhere and then get back to what you're How do you iterate on Correct. it, et cetera. Yeah. I like that. I enjoy that very much still. I like struggling with complex and abstract problems that hit us as a company that when we go to market and but anywhere uh, that we need to solve. Ryan, we're going to take a quick commercial break. And when we do, we're going to talk some more about your career uh, with Genesis and how you became the CMO at Genesis and what you see the future is for our brand. So stay with us. Hello again, Josh Reed here, producer of Take a Moment. And I cannot get enough of the conversation that we're having with Genesis CMO, Marine Taboy. In this conversation, Marine sheds some light on some of the changes Genesis has made to its brand and where the technology is going in the future, placing an emphasis on migrating to the cloud and looking at experience as a service. Everywhere from our placement on the Gartner Magic Quadrant to the name changes of our product portfolio with Genesis Cloud and Genesis Engage. To learn more about the brand of Genesis and the products highlighted in today's episode, check out the resources below on Genesis.com. And as always, thanks for listening. Be sure to subscribe and share and be on the lookout for the latest episode of Take a Moment. Ryan, your uh, life story is a fascinating one, and we could do a whole podcast series based on it. Uh, we haven't even gotten into your uh, sniping careers or anything like that. It's a story in and of itself. But I am very interested in your path to becoming a CMO of a very large tech company. And you started out not at the bottom, but you certainly didn't start there. Can you tell us about what your journey at Genesis has been like for the past 20 years? define bottom for me because that's an interesting topic. I, just, I still feel that I started as a sales engineer uh, and you could argue it's the riffraff of the organization and my sales engineer is like, what? No, I think it's a really good place to start. And I think a lot of people that have made careers at companies started there because you learn how to sell, you learn the product, you learn how to engage with customers, you're customer centric, you know what a project is all about. So I think it's a good place to start. And I started there because I had a meeting with Genesis, which didn't go very well as a customer, a potential customer. And uh, it happens out that the Genesis group had their financial uh, work be done by an outsourced company at which my wife worked. So this all came together and they reached out to me and said, listen, we read your RFI now. We think you know what you talk about when you talk about contact centers. Why don't you come work for us? Uh, and this was in 1999 when at that time Genesis was still an entity and I said, yeah, let's do that. But I need some time to finalize what I'm doing here. Uh, in the Netherlands at that time, you certainly had like four months in, I joined a company that at that time was bought by Alcatel. So instead of joining Genesis as an entity itself, I joined Alcatel. Although I always worked for Genesis and I've always been on a Genesis contract, but it did change the company that you go into because suddenly it's much bigger than it used to be, right? Then I started as a sales engineer, and I started as a sales engineer selling workforce management, which at that time was the only workforce optimization tool we had in our portfolio. Uh, for the people that were there at the time was 561, which is a remarkable little tool. It was the fattest client I've ever seen in my life. It was beautifully designed, but it was also really small and kind of weird. The only power of it really was the algorithms underneath that we built together with Bix Telecom, French Telco, uh, which were doing their job. They were really powerful, and they were actually starting to answer some of the multi-channel question at that time that we had, uh, which allowed us to sell it to a lot of companies that we uh, that we were in. Uh, so that's how I started as a sales engineer. 
After that, I went into direct sales. I went into professional services, uh, built a workforce management practice, then the reporting practice, then built the business consulting group, which I'm, I'm still very proud of. And I still think is a really big asset that we bring to the market when you talk about brand, for instance. Uh, from there, I went to product management, and from there, I went into, into marketing. So it's somewhat atypical, and many CMOs that I meet did not go through this path. They went to a marketing path or sometimes a product path, but it's very rare even those. Many of them that I meet actually came from an agency background, and uh, it's kind of funny to see that the agency background is becoming less and less relevant in the marketing world, especially in B2B. But yeah, it's atypical. I do think it allowed me and helps me to see many different elements of the company, uh, not only from the top, but from any angle, right? So. I've been in uh, pitches that go horribly wrong. Yes, I did demos on mainstays that go wrong, but it's much worse when it goes wrong in front of a customer. And uh, when you try to convey something or when they don't listen to you, I've been in a meeting room in Cairo where there are 36 people in a room half the size of this one, which is really tiny. And they're all on their phone and they walk in and walk out and they're trying to, you're trying to talk about your value proposition. Sometimes it doesn't work that way. You have to just take out all the tricks that you have and throughout the different roles that you get, you get a massive bag of tricks and that's very helpful. That allows me to look at stuff and problems, I think, in a slightly different way than when you go through one marketing path into to become a CMO of a company or you come outside as a CMO. I think contact centers and the business that we do and the customers that we have are complex and sophisticated and it's not easy. Real-time voice is not easy. There are a lot of elements in what we do that require background and I, I think require history. And, and I have that, and I'm very happy with that. It also allows you to take a look at what the brand really should mean. And when you look at it from the outside world, what you want to convey as a message. And, and I think for a long time, we conveyed no real message. And then we started conveying a message that I didn't really like. And when you then start changing it, you realize how hard that is and how complex that can be. And also, how, how sometimes you make little mistakes that then become much bigger. Or vice versa, you've got a little win that suddenly become a big win, right? So it's that's how we brand evolves, I guess, and erupts to new pastures and new new domains. And fairly recently, there was a rebranding effort at Genesis. Can you kind of walk us through what that process was like for you? That's a huge undertaking. Yeah, so this happened when Interactive Intelligence and, and Genesis came together, both with their own logo, both with their own narrative, both with their own uh, perception, I think, in the market both at that time with, with marketing organizations that were not the greatest in the world, could argue they were not really functioning very well. So we had to do a lot of stuff at the same time. We had to integrate a team, we had to integrate groups, we had to integrate and find better ways of marketing, while at the same time going to find a new identity, because that's really what we were trying to do. We looked at it for a while and we thought, should we? And we had this weird combination. It's a little bit like nice in contact, right? They just merged the two names and they have a little bit of a logo thing. Uh, we did similar things initially, but then we started looking at it from all angles and we felt this is a moment where we can start talking about the perception that we now have and see if we can change that perception. And the perception that we had at the time was very expensive, complex, Ferrari, uh, sophisticated, premise, infrastructure, middleware. Those were the words that people associated with brands, both Interactive and Genesis, by the way. Very heavy. Very heavy right, on the premise, right. yeah. Very infrastructure-oriented and... Uh, not, not very strategic, right? So when you become sticky in an environment, you don't want to become sticky because it's really hard to replace you. You want to become sticky because you add a ton of value. And I think it was the first more than the latter uh, that was associated with our brand. And, and we wanted to change that. We wanted to get to a world where we are recognized for mobility, for being adaptive, being smart, being agile, being very quick and, and in, 
sophisticated, but at the same time simple as well. Be cloud instead of premise. So those were all the words that you want to associate with your brand. And I got complete free hand. The only thing that I was told to keep was the name, Genesis. That was the only thing that I kept and the rest was all up for grabs. And uh, and we did, right? So we went to a complete new symbol. We changed the narrative. And, and that's when you start and you say, we did a rebranding, a rebranding, it's kind of an ongoing thing, right? right? We're not done, but we did the first initial 2017 launch uh, of what the brand symbol was about. And then the more important part becomes what's the visual, what's the narrative, what is the experience that you want to provide to your uh, to your customers and your the consumers that they have, because that's as far as the brand now should go, right? It's not B two B only anymore. It's B two B two C or whatever model you have. Uh, so that's what we're now looking at from a brand perspective. How do you keep on evolving the brand? How do you keep on iterating, make it bigger and bigger, while at the same time getting the perception that people have of your brand done rightly? And uh, so that's the, that's the main focus right now. How did you go about changing the narrative of the brand and the perception of Genesis to the public? Yeah, that's not done yet. So the first thing you do is you create a narrative that fits your brand, which is about the words that you want to see more, right? Agile, cloud, easy, but that takes time. So narrative is not something you put on paper and you hand out to everybody and we put it on walls in Daddy City when you walk in, this narrative is on the wall, but that takes time. And, and it's also where brand becomes much more than just marketing. It's too easy to expect that when you put it on your website or you, when you talk about it, that people will just remember that. You have to talk about it consistently, continuously. And, uh, and initially it's hard because there's a ton of people that work in the old way and that, that find that been, have been successful with that. They have to make that change and that takes time. And, and you need to allow that to happen because otherwise your brand will evolve too abruptly. And when it evolves too abruptly, then it starts breaking and cracking and people start doing their own thing. So you need to kind of find the, the right balance between guiding and telling. Because if you just tell, then people won't like that. We had that on occasion, right? So. Uh, we saw some pr product and we didn't like it very much and we kind of slashed it off and then people become defensive, rightly so. I have the same thing when people criticize something we do. It's hard to not become defensive, right? So you need to find the right balance between guiding and telling. And I think most of the time we find it and the narrative is the most important part of that because that's the one that people can't see. They have to live that. They have to think that. They have, have to, to feel breathe it. that, yeah. And I think we're getting much better. I think some of the changes we made are, are really helping. I'm very happy with the way Tony is diving into this and making his own and adding experience as a service to it because I think that fits very well with the brand, right? It's cloudy, but at the same time focused on what we really are all about, which is delivering great experiences. And so that's a good add and a good next step in, in what the brand evolution narrative-wise is all about. Uh, but you're in brand, Nate. You know, it's difficult to make sure that you keep the narrative consistent. You bring new people in. They come with their own thing. So this assimilation will continue to go. And, and it's, it's the great thing about the brand evolution is that it will continue to grow that way. And there are certain elements that you become much clearer about now, like the moments connected story or the experience as a service. Those are words that are becoming very normal and are part of our lingo. People talk about it that way. I think that the right thing is to get to the next level is to get rid of a little bit of the pure focus and the gen focus, not only to make it a one company, but also from a brand perspective, it's not the next step to maturity, right? You don't need little things like that to make the brand stand out for itself. The product in itself is good enough. It's great. So you don't need that anymore with a fancy name. You can just let that go. So that's the next step in your maturity narrative-wise as well as to get to that point. But there's much more to narrative only, right? The, if I look at a brand, as I said, a lot of people think it's marketing. It's not. Brand is defined by your people, by your product, 
by the stories that you tell. I think that's more and more important. And, and last but not least, I think it's becoming more relevant that you do good. So when I was in, uh, in, in university, when I felt good about what I did, I think it's becoming really important for us as a company to not only make your employees feel good about what we do, but also use the skills that you have and the technology that you have to do good in this world. And I think that's the, the, the final thing that you want to add to your brand because I think valuation-wise it will become relevant and important in the future. That you're green, that you focus on diversity, but you also give back. Not give back because you have to, because other people do it, but because you give back because you want to. Because you see a need for something that you can solve and only you can solve. And that's what we're focused on as well. And that's what I'm very excited about right now. Because that will give me the last, the fourth pillar of what a brand is all about. We talked a lot about landmines earlier in your previous life. What are some landmines that you feel like marketing organizations and businesses should avoid in their marketing when they are trying to establish a narrative? The overuse of words, so specifically focusing on the narrative. It's very easy to write a very complete story that nobody will ever remember. I read a lot of abouts, for instance, or disclaimers and, and elements like that, and I think the the art of a lawyer to use any word you can find in a dictionary to make a statement, it's, it's impressive. And, and being a, a lawyer uh, myself, I recognize the behavior and it's really, really difficult to write simple stuff. And we got some content people that do great. They write simple stuff. And then fun, funny enough, you put it through the rounds and a lot of people add words to it, like adjectives and, and stuff like that. And then when it comes back after all the circle, they're back to what it was in the beginning. And it makes me proud because those content people are very capable, very able in understanding what simple means. And, and I think it's really important when you do a narrative or when you do value propositions or value wedges even or differentiating statements that they are focused on simple words, simplicity that people can remember and align with. And I think a lot of the narratives that we see in a lot of websites are trying to do too many things, trying to be a, a library for all the content that they've created. Uh, they're trying to explain every little thing that you do as a company and nobody takes that, nobody controls that, nobody reads that and understands that. And uh, we're trying to go a different way, which is different and a lot of people say, why is this not there, why is that not there? But to have somebody go to the prime digital domains that you have, it needs to be something that they immediately engage with. And uh, a lot of words or a lot of pictures uh, doesn't do that, right? You need to find the right balance between everything that you have and allow that narrative to be simple so that they have an aha moment where it's, oh yeah, no, no, I get this, I understand this. And, and we're getting so much better in that now. And I find it very pleasing, actually. And I think it's the next step of our narrative is to take words that we don't really need out and just be simple to the point. And uh, that allows us to create much more visual aids for those as well and, and make it stronger. So, You have how many people in the Genesis marketing organization underneath you-ish? 300-ish. Out of those... 300-ish uh, people, what would you want them to know about you that you think they might have a misperception about? I think they don't have a mis misperception about the fact that I'm very proud of my team. I, I think we came from a long way. And it's always, it's difficult to be a marketing because marketing tends to be kind of hanging on the organization a little bit. And it's sometimes easy to criticize them because you do 99 things really well that nobody sees and then one thing goes wrong and it's all foobar, right? So that's hard in marketing. And I guess it's hard in every organization, but it, I feel it in marketing. And, Marketing's uh, like the CIA in that way. A little bit, yeah, <laughs> a little bit. And uh, a little bit of a trash can every once in a while too. But, uh, <laughs> Dumpster fire. Yeah. Uh, it can be. But I'm very proud of my team. And I think that they, especially looking at the last three years, we went from a, I would argue, somewhat dysfunctional group of people 
that had a ton of skills but were not really putting those to work to a, a, a functioning machine where we're putting stuff in and putting stuff out that I think is, is industry best. And I would argue any vendor that we compete with to have a better marketing organization, I sincerely doubt it. It's not the, only the reason we win awards, but just the sheer measurements that we have and the way we build our pipe, the way we build everything that we do is, I think, industry best. And that's what we try to achieve. Now the next step is to be the best across industries, right? So I don't really care about Avaya and, and Cisco. I care about companies like uh, B2C companies. I care about Apple and what they do. I want to learn from them because they do stuff that we can use very effectively as well. So that's the next step. And the next step is really around your digital domain, around your website, around self-service, uh, around the ability to serve your customers in a very different way than what we're used to in this industry. And I'm excited about the future. I think it will drive us to the next maturity step in our brand as well. How do you keep a brand fresh and relevant, but still, like you said, not changing everything up every, every year so that people lose track of what it is that you are, who you are. How do, how do you just keep things fresh, but still maintain the core of who you are? Well, part of that, so there's a, fresh is very associated with, with visuals, funny enough. Uh, so we do try to update our visual treatment on a fairly regular base, but not too often, right? You need to find the right balance between frequent base and not too often. We, uh, we created treatments for different events in different ways, different styles, and really look at it as any moment we are engaging with our customers, either whether it's physical or digital, as a moment where we can create a perception or a visual or an experience that they will remember. And those experiences should grow in time and they should change a little bit in what they've seen and what they've heard. And I think we actually do that quite well. The experience treatment that we have, the way that we looked at the G Summits last year, the way that the website is now changing uh, from an experiential perspective as well. It's constantly showing new things at the right time. And sometimes you, you see you were too early because nobody really reacts to it. Sometimes you're right on time. And uh, I think one of the big hot topics right now is migrations for our customer base, our install base. Uh, so I'm very excited to see this interactive uh, map almost on, on our website, which is right on time. And I think it's, it's a new way, new treatment in the same domain, but a new treatment that people say, ah, cool, new experience, right? So, so that's kind of the emotion that you want to create. And you need to evolve that. And, and you evolve that by adding new things to your brand, by adding new icons. But at the same time, you have to get, let go of old stuff, which is the harder part, actually. It's really easy to create something new. But then you need to get rid of older stuff as well. So we're now doing a refresh on the icons for the, the business units, for Engage and for Cloud, which I think will allow us to get to the next level again and get rid of some old stuff too. And that's yeah, that's that's how you try to do that. It's not a science, the art of timing. That's, that's why they call it the art of timing, I guess. But, <laughs> but you find the right moment, the right rhythm where your, your creative team and your, your content team are able to produce new output and take that on and, and take it on board. I also want to highlight it in the right way so that people can see it. That's why I've, if I have one ask of my internal team, it's just read stuff that we produce and let us know whether this is useful or not. Because if we produce stuff that nobody reads, we never know whether it's useful. So that's, it's an important balance that we need to find. And the same goes for our website. So just provide us feedback. And it's not an easy change every time, but sometimes it is. And we'll do it almost in real time. So. Tell us about the genesis of this race to the cloud. Well, the, uh, I think the genesis of that is the, the, the desire that we had to find uh, new ways to approach an audience, an existing audience, but also increase the audience that we work with. And I think that the, the actual genesis of that is, uh, is Alex Ball, who 
I figured out that James Hinchcliffe didn't have a team and he DM'd him on Twitter and I said, listen, what about us? And just in a kind of a, taking a shortcut here about, and that's where it started. And for those of us who don't, for those listeners who don't know exactly what the race to the cloud is, can we back up and talk about what that is, what it entails, uh, who we're sponsoring? Yeah, so, so we're sponsoring James Hinchcliffe, who is a Canadian uh, indie driver. Uh, we're sponsoring him for the month of May, plus some more, and we're trying to find some sponsors to increase the, uh, the spread we have. He gives us a fantastic platform. He's a great driver, great person, great personality, great social amplification ca capability. Uh, and Race to the Cloud is the campaign that we're running around that, uh, racing logically, that we want to get our customers to the cloud, right? So uh, a lot of incentives around Race to the Cloud for our customers, both on new logos and install-based, platform-to-platform migration. Uh, so that's the campaign we're running, and we're using uh, the Indy 500, the Indianapolis Grand Prix, the uh, Motor Speedway Grand Prix in Texas and Dallas as platforms, both from hospitality, but also from a digital perspective, to amplify that story and leverage James Hinchcliffe as a ambassador for our brand to talk about that. And, uh, and so far, looking at social amplification after our kickoff, it's going really well. We're hitting numbers that we've never seen before, so I'm, I'm very, very hopeful that will not only allow us to get into a new base of customers, which it already did because we get people on Twitter that say, hey, Genesis, thank you for bringing James back in because he's my favorite driver that we never heard of from customers that say, my God, so now I will go to the Indy 500. Genesis, can you invite me? I'm a loyal customer. <laughs> so it's, uh, it's, it's interesting. It's nice to see. And, and Race to the Cloud is the campaign that we run around it from a competitive replacement and, and platform to platform migration perspective. In uh, 2019, Forbes published an article about the five traits of successful CMOs. Right. So I'm going to read you these five traits, and okay. I'm going to ask you if there's any trait or two that you would add okay. to this list. And if they happen to be being a medic in the military, then that's cool too. Probably my, my yeah, choice. That's probably number one. Number one. Okay, so number one, they thrive on collaboration, which rings true, right? If you disagree with these, you know, then please do speak up and I'll contact the folks at Forbes. Right. Uh, number two is they are adaptable and creative. Number three, they put the customer first. Number four, they are great communicators. And number five, they are analytical and inquisitive. How do you feel about that list, and is there anything that you would add? I, I do think that in, to be a CMO of a, a product company in a B2B industry, with a range of products that go uh, in really sophisticated discussions and also from a market perspective hit everything. And with everything, I mean every market segment, every vertical, every country in this planet. I think it's very helpful if you're a little bit of a geek. Uh, and so I would add that. And I think that the ability for a CMO in our technology to understand technology trends and disruption, potential disruption, I think is a, is a really, really good thing. The other thing I would add is that I think a CMO of course, they need to be creative and they need to be collaborative. I think every executive, every person actually needs to be that way. You need to have the ability to just go out on, on gut feel and, and try stuff and, and fail, right? So you will do campaigns and A-B test them. Some of them work and some of them don't. And, and I think one of the strongest part of your marketing team needs to be the backbone that when you fail, this is a team effort, right? So it's not an individual that gets crucified for that. I think that's an important part as well important part of empowering your team knowing that they have that you have their back yeah and you will fail you will make mistakes and every every once in a while you see a plus class production and you think oh my god this is just fantastic we should do this all the time and that's really difficult and then and every once in a while you see something it's like oh, it's good but it's like an a minus it becomes worrisome when it becomes a d or an f 
But even then, sometimes you just get it wrong and, and you need to drop it, get on with the next thing, right? So it's part of life and you can't just keep on doing Fs as an individual because somewhere down the road, performance questions <laughs> are raised. But, but if you do something that's like frowned upon, then why analyze it, learn from it and do it better? And I think that needs to be part of, of a marketing team. And I think because of that, it needs to be part of a CMO to uh, allow that to happen and do it a little bit himself or herself. Brian, thank you so much for your time together with us. We really appreciate it. Thanks for taking a moment with us. Thank you.